Podcast One. Welcome along to Series 8 of the Howie Games, Episode 113, featuring English cricket great Lord Ian Botham. On we go. Let's talk about Botham's Miracle, which was before my time, Beefy. You're, now, you're looking at me as if to say which one, aren't you? That's what you're looking at. I was just wondering where you're going, yeah. <laughs> okay. You lost the captaincy of England. And then we get to Headingley 1981. The third test declared, as I said, both as miracle. I'll give a few details for our listeners and then you can pick up the story. Australia made nine for 401 declared. Ian Botham took six for 96. England were then steamrolled for 174. Botham made 50. So you trailed by 227 on the first innings. Uh, the Australians elected to enforce the follow-on. You came in and then at five for 105. Applause from Ian Botham as he comes out. Applause for Lily. At 1.7 for 135, still 92 short of making Australia bat for a second time. You might as well take the story out from here because I've watched it over the last couple of days and even as a patriotic Australian, I just loved watching it. You walking out to bat with the big long sleeve cable warm jumper on with the Duncan Fernley in your hand, it is swashbuckling beef. Lovely shot. Allman pitching up again, inviting him to drive, and Ian Botham needs no second invitation. Yeah, and, uh, you know, to be honest, I went out there and my attitude was, to be fair, it wasn't a particularly good wicket. And uh, we bowled, we didn't bowl very well collectively um, in the first innings. We were all responsible at different stages of not getting it right. And uh, they should, the Aussie boys should never, they, they scored 100, 120 runs more than they should have done. So we put ourselves in, on the back foot straight away. And then uh, went out there to bat in the first innings, just thought, you know, wickets were going down around me to see what I can do. Went out there. Uh, in the second innings, the follow-on, and I got out there, and when I went there, I walked out and I thought, right, be positive. And all this young man has to do, really, is to harness his talent a bit. Timed that beautifully, just went behind square for four. Don't hang around, because you're not going to save it hanging around on here, because you're going to get a ball with your name on it. So, when I had a chance, when it was up, I went for it. If it was short, I went for it. And... Um, and in between had a bit of luck. I mean, it wasn't a particularly great technical innings, believe me. It was anything but. And not quite where he intended, but it brings him his 50 nonetheless. His second 50 of the match, and that broad smile conveying the old sense of enjoyment. I mean, there was a few edges that flew over the slips and much to the slip cordon's frustration. Um, there's some some great shots as well, uh, but there was a lot. It was a real mixed bag. And then um, Graham Dilly walked out to bat, and uh, I can't remember what I had then, but I had a few on the board. And he came out and he said, "What do you, what do you want me to do?" And I said, "Pick her, mate. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> Don't be intimidated by this lot." I said, "Just enjoy." And he played like Graham Pollock. Uh, he just stood there and, and stand and deliver, and he got his highest test score. Um, and we had a great time out there. We enjoyed it. We laughed. We joked. We didn't take it seriously. We, everyone thought we were going to be on the receiving end anyway. 
And I said, we've got nothing to lose. Go for it. And he did. And there is the 100 partnership between Ian Botham and Graham Dilly in just 70 minutes, which have, uh, if they haven't turned the match upside down, they've certainly turned the character of the match upside down. And I enjoyed it at the other end, watching him. And uh, we added, I don't know what we added, a fair number. See, this is where I miss Dino, because Dino would tell me to the decibel point what, how many we had and how many we needed. But, um, mm. you know, I didn't know what we, how many we put on. Then he got out, and then Chris Old came in, and he hung around with me for a while. And everyone just chipped in down the, while I had fun at the other end. Safely away for four. That's a splendid hundred. A great innings by Ian Botham. 50 in the first innings, a century in the second, and six wickets. A marvellous all-round performance. Um, yeah, uh, I wasn't uh, dropped or anything, uh, but there was a few that went to, into the gaps. And he's got the single he wanted, so he'll have the strike in the morning. Ian Botham, 26 fours. A six and a hundred and forty-five not out. So they needed a, they needed a hundred and thirty to win. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, as I said to the guys, you know, we came out of the dressing room, we walked out, and I said, guys, you know, they're not going to be looking forward to this hundred and thirty. Let's make it as tough as we can because the wicket was anything but good. A variable bounce, a bit of pace. Um, so I started off at the coming down. Uh, the slope, there's not the same slope there now since they redid the ground, but there was a bit of a slope. And Bobby came up from the uh, Headingley Stadium end and he came up and uh, uh, I got the, we got the wicket and I think Australia were about 50 for one. That really was a difficult delivery. He's gone and there's not much that could be done about that. And Bob turned to Mike Breen and he said, any danger of me having a bowl down the hill <laughs> so in he came and uh, I think he bowled 15 overs 8 for 43 wow oh, what a good catch everything is running for both of them runs wickets and catches and the Australian captain goes for naught caught both of them bowled Willis oh good catch super catch that marvellous reflex action there Yallop has gone without scoring 58 for four with Dyson 29 not out. What a marvellous catch and what a great session for England. He needed didn't play in that game, you know, because he had a no ball problem leading up to it. And no. when Brias took over as captain, he rang him and said, you know, I, you know, do you want to play to Brias? He asked me the same question, do I want to play? Of course I did. And he said the same question to Bobby. And uh, Bobby just turned around and said, uh, mate, I missed this county game so I'm 100% fit and, and I've been sorting out my run up and uh, I'm ready so Bria said that'll do for me and he came down that hill he bowled like a man possessed you know he got a wicket he sort of gave it his little arms like that and then he just wandered off back to his mark with us <laughs> chasing him but um, no it was an amazing performance and I don't think if I remember rightly I don't remember him bowling a no ball in that uh, in that inning, in that second innings. And he got eight for 43, uh, bowled magnificently, supported well. We caught a lot of good catches. Graham Dilly on the boundary, I remember taking one off Rod Marsh, running backwards. In the air, Dilly is underneath it. 
and he's got it! A very, very good catch indeed in the circumstances. He didn't have much room to play with, another foot and he would have been over the boundary. Willis has taken his fifth wicket. Yes, he's got a touch and he's gone. Willis has taken his sixth wicket. Lawson out for one. And England on the brink of an absolutely sensational victory, which uh, is going to go down as one of the most amazing test victories of all time if it happens. Uh, we didn't miss anything. And uh, DK, who was threatening to get a few runs, uh, Dennis came in and chipped one up and Gat came running in, dived and caught it in front of him. And uh, he obviously thought it was a pork pie. <laughs> but the, but... Oh, what a good catch. And Lily has miscued it to mid-on. Gatting didn't sight it to start with. Couldn't pick it up in the background, then got it. And it needed a dive forward to take a great catch. 110 for nine. But, uh, but no, and we won the game. Bowl him. It's all over. And it is one of the most fantastic victories ever known in Test cricket history. Bob Willis, eight wickets. A fabulous performance. England have won this match after one of the most astonishing fightbacks you could ever see. And what a remarkable scorecard that is. 111. England regard that as the devil's number. Well, there was no devil's number about it today. Australia beaten and England winning by 18 runs. I checked out of the hotel uh, yesterday morning <laughs> and um, perhaps that's the secret. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe I can get you to talk about the bowling of your colleague Bob Willis. He's, uh, he's flaked out in the bath at the moment. I don't blame him. Um, it was tremendous. Absolutely magnificent piece of bowling. And it was great to see Bob come back and uh, prove all his critics wrong this winter when they wrote him off. When I talked when I talked to you Ian last night on this balcony after that superb hundred, you said, uh, well, if we can get another 50, it might be interesting. And in fact, you got another four or five, didn't you? <laughs> um, well, it made it even, that made it even more interesting. <laughs> One of the funny things about that, which you won't find in Google or wherever, um, we had a young dressing room attendant called Ricky Roberts. Now, that might not mean to anyone, uh, very much to anyone in Australia or in England, but Ricky Roberts was about 14 or 15 at the time and he was a dressing room attendant and I got on really well with him. You know, young lads from South Africa and uh, chatted away with him, found him quite coffee. He always had a coffee waiting for me and a beer at the end of the day. He was, he just got on well. And I thought, you know, took him out a little bit under my wing and uh, we're there and... Uh, end of the game, we come off the field. And, of course, the Aussies, as we thought, in fairness, at lunchtime, they were going to win the game. So had the champagne on ice in their bath. Oh. So there was no champagne in the pavilion. So uh, I said to Ricky, Ricky, listen, mate, just go across the corridor there, tap on the door, and just say to the Aussie, look, boys, can the England boys have some of the champagne? You won't be needing it. <laughs> mate, he came through the door horizontal he came through <laughs> clutching two bottles of champagne as he came through the door and I think it was Ray Bright and uh, Bacchus I think who just <laughs> gave him the, the, the sideways throw in but um, no that was that was a pretty amazing game and to be honest with you that sort of I think it deflated the Aussies a bit that game 
And then, yeah. as I say, the rest is history. What did what did that game do to you and your profile? Like, you, you know, you're known as a test cricketer, but did it take it to a whole nother level? Yeah, yeah, it changed my life. How? Um, uh, it, it just suddenly, the, one of the problems with it was I used to like to go out with a pint with the boys. Mm. And... Uh, Yeah, suddenly you couldn't go out as as you, uh, because it were you were now probably at that time the biggest sportsman in the UK and no um, couldn't go anywhere and it took me a couple of lessons to learn that because when you go into a situation like that there's always some guy that wants to yeah oh, you're the tough boy of English cricket are you let's see yeah. And I didn't need that. And, and I'm afraid I'm not the sort of person that turns the other cheek no. and walks away. So uh, I learned very quickly. And that's when Bob and I basically gave up going to pubs unless we knew everybody there and we'd go and have a pint. Uh, so that's when we used to, that's when the wine bars and the restaurants and we would go there, have a nice meal, a couple of bottles of wine and just uh, escape. And... Um, you know, he was as much a hero in that game as any as me by, by a long way. So, you know, there was a few heroes that day. Graham Dilly, sadly no longer with us. Uh, you know, the, the, the way the team supported it, uh, Bob in that uh, time. So, yeah, there was a lot of heroes on that day. But Bob and myself, we just sort of, you know, sort of cut cut ourselves and let ourselves do our own thing rather than the group thing. And Beef, how did, how did you cope? I mentioned earlier on the Fleet Street Press and... <laughs> You know, we've seen it with English footballers. You know, it, it hit Beckham. You know, it was Beckham mania. But you were pre-Beckham when they was just as brutal, your newspapers. How did you deal with it when, you know, you'd, you'd bump into a bloke in a pub and the next day it would literally be across the paper, you know, both of them out till 7 a.m., 15 pints in, hit three blokes, locked up. How did you cope with that invasion in your life? Bump 7 a.m., that must have been an early one. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, true. <laughs> but, um, no, the, uh, at the end of the day, there was a bit of a tabloid war. There was quite a big tabloid war going on in the UK. There was also right. the race riots. Uh, we had the miner strike. Um, the country was in a fair bit of turmoil. Parts of the cities were burning with the riots. And I think that was the other thing. that The country needed something, and... We were that thing. We were that vehicle, the England team. And so suddenly uh, you got risk to a higher elevation and the tall poppy syndrome then came in with the press. And to be quite frank, I look back at it now and really I should have just walked away and, you know, gave him the bird. But um, no, it wasn't It wasn't pleasant times. And we had some disgusting stuff that was written. That were, you know, I'm no angel. Uh, and I think everybody knows that, and I, I never pretended to be. But uh, I'm certainly not capable of some of the stuff that was written. So, um, yeah, it, it caused a few problems. Um, uh, but luckily, the you know the family we got through all that. And uh, to be honest with you, uh, probably the better for it. Um, but yeah, it was tough times, and you know they really didn't care. They didn't care whether it just why let the truth through in a good story. And that was the attitude. So, yeah, you just got to move on with it, Harry, and get on with it. And, you know, nowadays um, it's quite nice because, you know, please, please, uh, Ian, can we have an interview now? Can we do this and can we do that? 
And yeah. I quite like that. So it's turned the full circle. But, you know, it was tough. And it, and it wasn't just me. There was Nigel Mansell, world champion, was getting it. He was copying it. Nick Faldo was copying it. You know, there was no, it wasn't just on me. It was on anybody that was successful in sport and not just sport. You know, it was a terrible time. It, it was really quite a bizarre time. And it, it should have been stamped on by the then government and say, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, but Fleet Street, um, as we see now, are still um, trying to run the world. So, yeah, as media, as you talk about your media as well now, yeah, it's it's pretty tough. It's it's definitely gone down that path, unfortunately, in Australia in the last ten or fifteen years. So this is another urban rumor now. At the height of your fame, Beefy, was there the opportunity potentially arising? For you to play James Bond. <laughs> I thought you might bring that up, Howie, yeah. Um, yeah, there was, uh, there was talk. Is that true? It was media talk. Right. Tabloids. And right. No, I don't think it was ever going to happen. Um, well, I know it, it was never going to happen. But uh, I mean, did, did, you, did you go to America and explore uh, I went to the States, yeah. When I went to the States, um, which all that did was um, basically make me realise that I'd really don't like America very much. <laughs> uh, I like New York uh, and I like to go up to Portland and do fish for the steelheads, but to be quite frank, the rest of it, you can have. Um, but um, a weird bunch, that lot. Uh, but um, no, I, I went over, I got offered a couple of... Uh, I'll tell you what I got offered. The one that they came and saw me and they said, we'd like you to play. And I said, what's the part? And I said, you know, he said, oh, uh, you're a psychopath. In a movie, a horror. So, yeah, okay, right, fine. Type, type <laughs> casting, yeah. <laughs> so that never. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it's actually a bit of a giggle, if I'm honest. And uh, I had a couple of mates over there and caught up with them, and uh, yeah, it was a bit of a giggle. So the, we're saying no to potential James Bond, no, or there was definitely talk? no, no. Okay, we've ascertained that one. Now I want to ask you about another. Uh, cricket match. My first ever cricket match I can remember. Beefy, indulge me for a moment. I'm a young man living in Perth. It is the Ashes, 1982 at the MCG, the famous Thompson-Border partnership, which when it came to its conclusion, Beefy, believe it or not, and I can remember this clear as day, uh, we'll set up in a moment what occurred, but Channel 9, it would have been, in Perth. We're in a P&O Cruises ad break. I can remember clear as day, Beefy. I was like six or something. And as they came out of the ad break, Jeff Thompson was walking off with his head bowed. So we didn't actually see really? what you'd done to us yet again. And I can remember it clearly. But again, uh, uh, 9 for 218, requiring 74, Border and Thompson, AB, my first ever sporting hero because of that. Gordon drives, he looks for two, it's wide, Lamb coming across, going for the second, got him, no, he's home, oh, photo finish. Let's have a look at the scorecards now, at uh, the close of play, Australia with that partnership between Border and Thompson, took the final score along to nine for 255. They needed 74 to win the test match with the last wicket, uh, 37 on the final day. There was no one there, Beefy. Tell me what happened that day. Well, there wasn't. You're absolutely right about no one being there. Um, they actually opened the gates up at the MCG. And you know, we all know what Victorians are like with sport. You know, they, they, yeah. They'll be there. And typical Victorians, uh, who are probably some of the best 
sports uh, supporters anywhere in the world. Mm. And uh, we went out there at the start of the game and whatever they needed. Uh, I think it was 74, the, the overnight score. It was a bit less than that one. Nah, right? 74 overall and 37 on the last morning. So they've done their bit that night and we all thought, oh, well, you know, it can't go on. And I think the Australian public thought it couldn't go on. And uh, we went out there and there was about, ah, oh, there'd probably have been about two or 3,000, n- not much more than that. And we went out there and these guys are bowling and Bob Willis had this guy bowling and that guy bowling and I'm looking at the scoreboard and it's getting closer and closer. And by now there's 10,000 in the ground. Alan Border is 50 and they'll be looking for two here. And very well run, Jeff Thompson. Alan Border moves along to 51 and then by the time they wanted 10 to win there's probably 40,000 in the ground <laughs> you know they just came came from nowhere they emerged supporters from all over the place typical and um, uh, I said to Bob with a wanting I don't know what you wanted four or five runs or something stupid so Paul is going to look for two here and should get it satisfactorily there Mr Fielder now it's four to win for Australia. And I came on, I said, Bob, you know, I kept on walking past him with the arm like this. You know, it's, uh, I'm not broken. It's not broken yet. It's still all right. <laughs> so you hadn't bowled? Yeah, I hadn't bowled. I hadn't bowled in the morning right. at all. So he I threw me the that. ball and I said, well, thanks for giving me a lot to work with. And uh, <laughs> went in there and uh, came in. Nice little, um, the swinging half volley, you know, the loop, you know pretty much a loosener. <laughs> And Tomo's eyes lit up and he went at it, nicked it. And then uh, Chris Tabaret at second slip did his utmost to cock it all up and put, palmed it up in the air. And Jeff Miller ran behind, caught it, game all over. Ian Botham bowls now to Jeff Thompson. He's got him. Second time, Tabaret knocked it up. And it was taken by Miller. Thompson has gone so close. England win by three runs. Well, what about that then? What a marvellous game of cricket this has been uh, here at the MCG. Three runs, the lowest winning margin ever, equaling the one in 1902 at Old Trafford. A fantastic performance by both teams to provide such entertainment. And I'm certain England were getting very, very nervy out there. Even the touch of panic buttons at one stage seemed to be hit by the fielders running into one another and one or two other little disasters. Um, yeah, so I have to say that Tomo was pretty uh, pretty upset there. Uh, and, I mean, Tomo, you, didn't, you don't really associate Tomo and emotion, do you? Not, not, not on a sports field. No. You know? and, uh, yeah, and he's a great guy, Tomo. I, I love him to death. I, I think he's... He epitomises me... Uh, an Australian quick bowler. You know, I'd rather be surfing, yes. but I'll run in the plimps and, and uh, bowl as fast as I can. But um, but uh, he went in there and he was he actually uh, had a go at us in the dressing room, walked, stormed into his dressing room, blah, 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 and everything. He was just all over the place. <laughs> anyway, about half an hour later, he came in and sat down, had a beer. and um, But, you know, it, it hurt him. It hurt him a lot. I don't think... I reckon if you ask Tomo, that would probably be the thing that hurt him most in all his sporting career. Yeah. Uh, because he and AB did an amazing job. And AB kept him going. And, you know, you know, I've always said there should be a bronze statue of AB outside every cricket ground in Australia. 
because what, mm. when he took over Australian cricket and he had to crack the whip and no wives and he got the nickname Captain Grumpy, but he, he went through it all. And Australian cricket, you know, you look at the side that he developed and the way that the pre- captains after that inherited and, the, you know, the great side, but it all started with Alan Border and his mindsets. And uh, I, I get on really well with Abe. I spoke to him uh, over the Dino thing, of course. Um, but um, no, got a lot of time for AB and uh, I think he's one of the gutsiest players I ever played against and I suppose in some ways they probably deserve to win that because of the effort they put in yeah. but having said that bad luck <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you broke my heart as a six year old just on that that you mentioned you've already mentioned Dino a couple of times so very warmly and the way you've just spoken about Alan and I know you've got a lifelong friendship with Viv Richards it just seems, I don't know whether it's you or that generation, more so than retired cricketers now who I work a lot with, they're, they're friends with those they played against, but you seem to have this incredibly deep bond, Beefy, with people you played cricket against in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s. Why is that? Well, I think if you, if you look at the way the game has developed now, uh, at the end of the day's play, if we'd been out in the field, and uh, in Perth in 40 degrees or whatever, sitting in the dressing room, taking off the wet shirts and throwing the socks and everything into the kit bag to go to the laundry. And you were there and the Aussie boys would walk in with a couple of slabs of cold beer. And then what happened was you'd you'd sit around in little groups and have a chat. And and we didn't need match referees in those days because if there's any problems, it was sorted out in the dressing room afterwards. And sort of in a man-to-man way. You know, okay, well, I got that wrong. Sorry, boys. Overreacted. Blah, blah, blah. End of story. Um, but you also learnt a lot. You know, I learnt a lot in my early tours sitting in the dressing room listening to someone like DK Lilly talking about, you know, the wicket and how he should have bowled on it or he bowled, he's really pleased. He took his pace down like he used to do in Melbourne and bowled more cutters and uh, varied it, the odd quick ball. And, you know, that was quite an insight for me as a kid, you know, as a youngster in the early days. And then it just continued throughout my career. You know, I remember Tomo in, uh, in Sydney bringing in this great big esky full of uh, seafood uh, from his mate down the road. And you know, he, he's the only man I can see uh, drink a, a can of beer and peel three prawns in the other hand. You know, I mean, quite amazing. <laughs> and I used to watch that and I used to think, how's he doing that? But, uh, but uh, now, Tomo, you form bonds. And I don't think nowadays the players have that same interaction. No. And uh, I think that's a shame, really. You know, they say, oh, we're, we're, we're much more professional. Well, I wouldn't go that far, boys. But, um, yeah, <laughs> you, know, you rehydrate with your Gatorade if you want and we'll go and have a beer. And I know which one I'd rather. I think I know which generation I'd rather play in. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so, no, but you, you made a lot of friends around the world. You know, I, I, the one thing I've always said... Uh, and I genuinely know it because I've tested it. There's not a cricketing country around the world, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Australia, New Zealand, uh, where I, I can't go in and have a beer. And if I came to the country, I couldn't make a phone call and meet up with someone for a beer. So, yeah. you know, that's what it means to me. You know, these guys, you do battle with them, but uh, you do your battle. And at the end of the battle, um, you have a beer. You know, it's, it's done. You know, what happens out there on the field's done. Now let's have a couple of beers. I mean... Many a time, even when I was playing for Somerset and with Viv and Joel sitting in the dressing room and, you know, Dennis Brake or a couple of the boys in the Somerset days, you know, Kath would be sat in there, you know, twiddling her thumbs till about half nine. You know, and then we wonder, actually, where have you been? 
And uh, but um, I, I love my wife dearly, beefy. But if I had the opportunity to sit in a dressing room with Viv Richards and have a beer, I'd never come home. <laughs> well, that was pretty much it, to be honest. <laughs> but the, the fact of it is that Viv and I shared a house for ten years uh, in Taunton, so um, that's a very special bond. You know, it's, you know, he's godfather to Liam, my um, son, who Liam's his eldest, Liam's eldest. Um, yeah, so uh, very, very close. And it's a great, I'll tell you how strong the relationship is, Howard, just to give you an idea. And Border's a bit like this mm-hmm. as well, Border and Jones. Um, Dino in his day, we, 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 you could sh- ship into town and you haven't been there for 12 months and you catch up and it's like you've been there for mm. those whole 12 months. It's that kind of relationship that you build. And it's great, you know. I, Sit down. We we very rarely reminisce. I have to say, we'd more like to talk about golf uh, or whatever. Or AB's just been walking around some Greek mountain or something, uh, which he uh, gets to do. So, um, yeah, they're quite special relationships, and very 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 proud of them. To be honest, um, I'm not sure we'll even be travelling this year, but we'll just have to wait and see. Or next, nah. uh, we should be a crying shame. Anyway, I've got to bloody travel. I've got to go and make, make some wine. So uh, blend yes. some wine. So, yeah. So I've got to find a way in at some stage. I'm just hoping that things quieten down. But, yeah, I think the, if you look at the eras uh, of playing Test cricket, I think we probably played in, in the best the best era. Some of the toughest cricket, some of the best players the world's ever seen, and more importantly, um, lasting relationships with guys. And, you know, you can pick their brains. You know, if I'm looking for a young cricketer for, say, Durham, you know, I could bring up AB, you know, what's this lad at Queensland like? You know, see he's getting a few runs. So you, you've got that that connection, which is which is nice, interaction. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely answer. As you know, Beefy, I am a cricket nuffy, so I've just, I just want to ask you one more specific cricket question, what it mean, meant to you. I mentioned the uh, Duncan Furling earlier on and the the big uh, woolly jumper. I'm now going to you with your big sort of, and I know you know Dermot Brereton. Your Dermot Brereton look, you had the long blonde hair. I don't know if it was a perm. Uh, you knocked over Jeff Crow leg before wicket for eight to become the leading test wicket taker in the history of the game when you passed DK with 356. Um, I was watching that as well, mate. Um, it made me smile because there was a massive roar around the ground. What did, what did that moment mean to you i know you're not really a man for statistics but to have taken more test wickets at that stage than anyone in the history of the game that's a wow what a tremendous achievement yeah i just um had a altercation with the um ecb at that stage so i had a little rest for a month and uh so i came back that was my comeback test what why'd you have a rest for uh, well, it could be any one of a hundred things. Uh, okay, <laughs> okay. We, we, won't, we won't explore that. Let's yeah, talk about the record. But, but um, no, I had a little rest and uh, a rest. <laughs> and I uh, went back out. I went out there, and uh, Bruce Edgar was facing. And my first ball, I thought I'm not going to bowl the floppy bloody long hop. <laughs> so I, I came in. I gave it everything I had, and I got a little bit of bounce. And he nicked it. And then Graham Gooch did his utmost to try and drop it, but he hung on. And um, so that set the whole place alight, first ball back. And then um, Jeff Crow, little in-swinger, uh, might, actually might not have got it today with the uh, oh, referral. DRS. Might have been just a little high, but it was good enough for me. <laughs> Beautiful ball, right up to the net. Just the suggestion of in-swing, and Ian Botham 
has become the greatest wicket-taker of all time. He beats Dennis Lilly as Botham takes his 356th test wicket and Jeff Crow is the victim. And, um, yeah, the place erupted. And uh, I remember when I got the first wicket with the first ball after the... They refused... I, I actually had been scoring... I came back from my little rest and I scored a big hundred for Somerset and I, what have you. And they didn't pick me for the game, the previous test because they said, oh, we're not sure if he's ready. Like, I'm going to forget how to play cricket in three weeks. <laughs> and um, so when I got it, I just turned to where the all selectors were and gave it the big, yeah, right in, you know, in their face almost. And uh, <laughs> the whole ground knew what I was doing. So they just erupted. You know, and and uh, no, uh, very big moment. Um, uh, to do it in England was great as well. Um, any 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 ground in England would have done, um, or the MCG on Boxing Day. Maybe I'd have enjoyed that one as well. But um, mm. but no um, no, it was a great moment. It was um, special. I actually, hung on to that record for quite a while. But yeah, then now you got Jimmy Anderson look six hundred wickets plus, and um, yeah. Broadie's got what five hundred something like that. I don't know four hundred fifty. It's a different era, though. It's a different era. Could totally different. Totally different. The amount of games they play. They don't play in between the games which I'm not sure is necessarily a good thing, but that's another debate. And their post-match warm-down is probably a little bit different to what yours was too, I think, Beef, as far as longevity goes. Well, which one would you rather be in? No, yours. Yours, definitely <laughs> there you yours. Go. I'll rest my case. I'd, I'd, I'd be happy with three test wickets, let alone 350. Mate, could you imagine, could you imagine Ben Stokes playing in our era? Oh, my heavens. Above. I think Ben Stokes would like to have played in your era. He'd have loved it. Believe me, he'd have yeah. loved it. Did you get a thrill out of him and the World Cup win? I know you obviously were close in, in Melbourne. I also remember in Cape Town, he played an amazing innings against South Africa. And I didn't realise it, but apparently I held the record for some uh, for England for the fastest double hundred, right? Ah, he beat and, it. and he went pra- cruise past it. And I didn't know until it was <laughs> announced. It came up on the scoreboard. And I'm sat in the country <laughs> box, and I, no, I don't think anyone realised, apart from Benny, our stats man, and it came up, and I thought, oh, bloody hell, there's another record gone. But it's a record I didn't know I had. So, yeah, but, but no, I love watching Ben. He's a breath of fresh air. Uh, I like the way he plays. Um, I think there's you know, quite a lot of um, parallels there between us. There are, yeah, there are. Back to Ian in a moment. We have been lucky enough to feature a lot of cricketers over the years on the podcast, but few have a story like Farwood Ahmed, a man who has faced so much adversity and some frightening situations whilst pursuing his cricketing dream. Farwood appeared on the show back in episode 81. There was more threats. There was like a, you're getting phone calls and you're getting like a letters and stuffs, you know, and they just threaten you and they says, oh, wherever you are, we're going to find you. And that's just the phone call make you like a really scared you know like so you were getting these phone calls everyone's was getting you know and they says oh if you do this same thing gonna happen we're not we're not gonna let you go anywhere what's it like when you're personally being threatened for your life it's it's really hard even when i came here i was still like uh, getting scared you know my family there my friends is uh, one of my friend got killed as well in the bomb blast as well in the suicide bomb blast and there was like a terrible one of my friend got kidnapped. He was a good cricketer. He was a good first-class cricketer. He took, I think, more than 300 wickets and he was almost close to play for Pakistan. He got kidnapped and got killed as well. He got killed? Yeah, got killed. 
That is Farwood Ahmed. What a remarkable story that man has. Episode 81 of the show. Check it out. Alrighty, let's get back to Beefy. Uh oh, here comes my grandson, the youngest one. I thought I could hear him. What's who's you that doing? So, who's that? What's his name? Arthur. Come on, Arthur. Arthur. Who's that? G'day, Arthur. There he is. Yeah, Arthur's I'll just been... him off. <laughs> He's run off, mate. Took one look How at you. How old's Arthur? Uh, Arthur's uh, about twenty months. Okay. So he took one okay. look at you, Howie, and buggered off. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it mean to you to be a grandparent? Brilliant, because as a player. And I, and I give this advice to any player play, playing a lot of international cricket. You're away a lot now. In our days, yep. um, we we had to you know the wives well they weren't really encouraged to come on the tours no. in the early parts. And then uh, nowadays they get looked after royally. You know if they're away for three months they get two flights out paid for with a you know, business class with the kids etc cetera, etc. Cetera, which is right if you're going to take players away. I'm all for that. But in our day it was a bit different. And, uh, yeah, so we just had to uh, accept that we were away. And, uh, but, no, I, I like it. I think it's right the way it is now, not the way we were. But we were away for long periods of time. And uh, so you didn't get much time with your own children. And so I would describe myself as probably uh, not the greatest dad in the world, but definitely grandfather of the year. On that very topic, Beefy, and you've led me right into it. My two kids ask questions of the guests on the show, Beefy. Yeah. Um, I tell them a little bit about them, and then they have a question. Now, you get the question from my son, who is eight. His name is Mac, Beefy, but he gave he gave himself the nickname the Big Penguin about six years ago, and that's what he's known as, the Big Penguin. So uh, this is his question. Hopefully you can hear it over there in uh, up Durham Way. Here's the Penguin. Hi, Lord Botham. Big Penguin here. On the weekend, my dad got to play his first game of cricket for 15 years. Wow, that's a long time. I went to watch, but I bring my whites just in case. You know why, Beefy? Because I might just get to play. And in the end, I got to field for the whole 40 overs. It was so fun. But what I want to know is have you ever played a real good Cricket match with your son. And I know your son is a fantastic cricketer. Did you? The big penguin wanted to know because me and him had the time of our lives on Saturday playing a game of cricket together. Did you ever get that opportunity is what he wanted to know. Yeah, he wasn't very complimentary about your age there, was he? But anyway. Um... <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't. Um, no, only uh, did a father and son with him. Right. When he was at school. And uh, I had to win that. Was it special? Yeah, it was actually. It was fun. It was good fun, but as you say, he was pretty talented in those days, Liam. Uh, but then yeah. he went to rugby uh, because he wasn't going to live under the shadow of dad. Uh, mm. So he um, went to rugby and made his own mark. Uh, but, yeah, it was fun. But um, that was the one opportunity. Right. We got to do it on Saturday, and it was funny because you were mentioning earlier on as a young bloke, always take your whites. And I oh, said to me, young fella, just, just take your whites, mate. And, no, just go. You and, never know. And, You'll get your opportunity. Hey, you, we spoke a lot about cricket and we spoke at the start about being a lord and a sir and a lot of that is to do with your cricketing performance and the way you lifted the British community, no doubt, with your performances on the ground, but a lot of it is to do with the amount of money you've raised for charity and particular uh, leukaemia in kids. H- how did that – well, firstly, how much have you raised over the years, do you reckon, Beef? 
It's really impossible to put a total on because everything's rolling on. Uh, I must admit, yeah. it's been tough through COVID you know, from the charity's point of view. A lot of them are suffering because um, they're just not getting the... Everyone's no. been very cagey, so, which you understand. Give me a ballpark so people understand what you have done for people. And I, I, I don't know, 30, know, 40, 50 million? I don't know. I have no idea. Pounds? Yeah, yeah. So how did this start and we'll get into the walks you've done because they are a part of my youth. I remember reading and watching and seeing the pictures. How did you come to be a position to want to raise money for kids with leukemia, mate? Uh, very simple. I broke my bone in my foot against the Aussies in 77 up at uh, Headingley and I got sent, you got sent back then to your parent club. So I went back to Somerset. They took me to the hospital for um, to see the physios after they'd done the x-rays and determine what treatment they were going to give me. So I uh, went in there, uh, walked in with the doc, and to get to the children's ward, uh, sorry, to get to the physio's ward, you had to go through the children's ward and uh, walk through. And, you know, you can see kids are obviously ill, they're in traction, tubes sticking out and what have you. There were four lads sat at a table playing one of those board games. So I said to Dave, I said... Uh, a club doctor uh, and these kids, and he said, no, no, these kids are seriously ill. Uh, they have uh, leukaemia. And I thought, okay, what's leukaemia? I had no idea. And he explained to me in layman terms, it's cancer of the blood. So um, he said, you're going to have about eight weeks treatment here for this bone to repair and get everything going. Um, and... I'm sad to say that I don't think these lads will be with us in eight weeks' time. And true enough, they weren't. And what happened was, at the end of that, I was quite, you know, it was pretty moving. You, you go in every morning, high-five the kids or, you know, whatever, bit of fun, mm. and um, walked in. And um, true enough, uh, when I finished, left the hospital, all four of them are gone. So... Uh, I said to Dave, the doctor, I said, Dave, is there anything I can do to help? You know, he said, well, I'll tell you what you could do. You've seen the parties that we give to the kids. In fact, you've been to them uh, when they're on the, about to pass. They, they, um, they give them a party. It could be, you know, birthday, Christmas, doesn't matter because they're on so many painkillers. It's, it's a party. Uh, but we have no funding. So I said, okay, fine. Well, Kath and I uh, said, we'll fund the parties. Well, there's quite a lot of parties. And we thought this went on for a few years. And then in the mid 80s, I saw a, an article from a dear old lady called Dr. Barbara Watson. And every summer she would uh, go down to the South Coast. Uh, she lived on the South Coast rather, and then she'd go all the way up to John O'Groats and then meander back over three months. Right. So I got the idea, I thought, well, hang on. instead of doing this, why don't you do a sponsored walk? No one's ever done it. So I went along to do the press uh, announcement with leukemia. My wife, Kath, thought I was going to say London to Brighton, something sensible. And I <laughs> blurted out after what, reading that, I was I'm going to do John O'Groats to Land's End. Uh, well, I'll give you a quick insight. My, my geography wasn't great in those days, and I didn't realise it was 400 miles from John O'Groats to the English border. And then I had another... Just si to the border? Yes, then I had another 600. So I had a 1,000-mile walk. <laughs> Uh, and that's how it started. And we raised uh, a lot of money. The whole country got behind it. Uh, we raised lots and lots of money. Uh, we made over a, collected over a million just in the buckets uh, with wow. the collectors. And that paid for the uh, start of the Leukemia Research Centre out of, outside to start to build it outside of Glasgow. And over the years, that's been topped up. And now we have um, uh, a magnificent uh, 
uh, it's all for research, research centre. And the thing that keeps you going, Harry, and this is the most important part. When we started uh, in the mid-80s, it was a 20% chance of survival for kids with the most common form of leukaemia. It's now 94%. So it's a drastic change. And that's through the guys, the research boys, they're brilliant. They're, the grounds are made. But it doesn't just help us. It helps other forms of cancers. So, um, yeah, that, that, and, yeah, I really am very proud of that, to be honest. And uh, Kath and I, I do the walking, but the girls um, and my volunteers, the same people came for, you know, they're going away for three or four weeks. And they used to save the holidays and come and run the walk. So I've got guys who drive the lead car, you know, a mobile home, people that move the luggage from hotel to hotel. You know, there's a whole entourage. And it, they do the hard work. It takes 18 months to set up a walk because you've got to get permission from all the councils, the police, and work out the route with them. A lot of work. And um, so consequently, I did the easy bit and did the walking. And uh, But it's been a great success. We've done 17 walks now. The last one I did was in Australia, uh, which we did yeah. for di- type 1 bi- diabetes. Um, so, yeah, we, but we have other functions going on now. Uh, so we, we've got the golf days, we've got uh, all sorts of things just to keep the ball rolling. Um, Botham Wines, I mentioned it in the intro, that it has become a massive part of your life. It is my well, life. You, you're, it's your passion, yeah? It started off as a passion. So after 40 odd years of practice, <laughs> I think... I, I've seen you practising. <laughs> I don't think you need any more practice. Mate, I think it's safe to say that... Uh, a lot of practice, uh, but a lot of, um, I love the wine industry. I love the people in the wine industry. Got a lot of great mates. Jeff Merrill down in um, Adelaide there, very close friend. Uh, and to Bobby, the three of us, three musketeers it used to be. Uh, but um, yeah, so it, I look at it now. Uh, basically, I go to a vineyard, source the wine, and then I blend it blend it with their uh, chief winemaker. And then we come up with the, what, I, what I like. And the whole object of this is the wines that I bottle in the three different uh, stages from entry, middle to top are all wines that I put on my own table. So there's no Sauvignon Blanc because I don't like Sauvignon Blanc. So so, we're, it's, 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 so we've actually um, done this. It's, it's expanded. Uh, we're re-launching uh, in Australia and New Zealand because of the previous distributor. That's another story. But um, no, very, very proud of the wines I make. Uh, Matthew Dukes put this Chardonnay from the Adelaide Hills, went into the top 100 Chardonnays in the world. In the world, yeah. uh, the Cabernet has just uh, won a gold in the World Cabernet Awards. So we're very proud of it. Um, and to be honest with you, I sometimes wonder whether I should have done this 10 years ago. But uh, I'm actually loving it. And I got to that age where I did all the commentary work, 23 years as a commentator, I think it's long enough. And I decided that I want to do something else. So I walked away. Uh, and thanks, Guy, for the time. Uh, I didn't want to renew a contract, and I moved on. And uh, now it's just frustrating because I should be on my way to Australia now to do the yeah. vintages, and I'll be going back after Christmas, and then I'll go on to New Zealand. So we'll just keep fingers crossed and see what happens, and hopefully I can get back down, catch up with you guys, and blend a bit more wine. I hope so. Um, I had a few more for you. We'll have to do it next time you get down here. Final question that I always ask. Uh, and in some ways it's the hardest one to, to answer. 
um, Lord Botham, if you wanted to give some advice to a youngster that was listening to this, which we have a lot of youngsters listening that want to achieve success in their field, whether it's sport or the arts or the science or mathematics or music or whatever it is that floats their boat, what advice would you give them? Very simple. Um, whatever you do, enjoy. So if you're a young creator, go out there and hit it and run around. Don't worry about the technical side of it. That will come. The most important thing is to enjoy it. And that's why I think sometimes I watch parents who push too hard for the kids. I want you to do this almost trying to relive their lives through the kids. And you mustn't do that. Let the kids go out there. The more they enjoy it, the more they want to do it. So enjoyment. It's all about enjoyment, particularly in those early days, you know, the five to ten-year-olds. That's, it's all about kick it as far as you can, that, that uh, footy, kick it as far as you can, hit that ball as far as you can, hit that golf club, just go out and enjoy. It's all about enjoyment. If you do that, the rest will fall into place. As I mentioned at the start, you walked into a Triple M Comgy box. I'd never met you. No one realised that. I was introduced to you in an ad break and we literally went on air. We had a 30-second ad break to say good day and I was... Uh, a little bit overawed and I didn't know what to call you and you just said call me beefy and you were warm and engaging and very welcoming and made me feel very friendly and relaxed and I see you do that with people constantly so people are going to get that idea from you from having listened to this podcast. I hope to see you in Australia soon. Hope to drink one of your wines with you. Thanks so much for joining me on the Howie Games. It's been a thrill for me to chat with you. I really mean that. Howie, it was a pleasure working with you. It's a pleasure doing the podcast with you. Uh, stay safe, mate. Have a great Christmas. And hopefully, and to everyone listening, the same for everybody, enjoy what, whichever way Christmas goes, but make the most of it, and hopefully we can all catch up in the new year. Good on you, B. Stay safe. Cheers, bud. As I said at the start, the House of Lords was literally calling Lord Ian near the end there. So there's a few more topics I would have liked to get to. We'll have to get him on another time. Don't forget to check out Botham Wines. Outstanding gear if you're over 18. What a star that man is. A born entertainer and for me, a true privilege to spend time chatting with him. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Spread the word about the podcast for me to your crew. That'll be fantastic. Das Nardin, as always. Thanks for taking some of your valuable time to listen to the episode. Stay safe. Until next episode with Nathan Lyon. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. try.